Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The studio life of Anne Truitt, 1921-2004, is explored in the Focus exhibition In the Tower, Anne Truitt, on view from November 19, 2017 through April 1, 2018. The first major presentation of Truitt's work at the National Gallery of Art, the exhibition celebrates the museum's acquisition of several major artworks by Truitt in recent years, including seminal works from the collection of the Corcoran Gallery of Art, as well as several outstanding loans. Bringing together nine sculptures, two paintings, and 12 works on paper representing the different media in which the artist worked, the exhibition traces Truitt's artistic development from 1961 to 2002. One of the most original and important sculptors to emerge in the United States during the 1960s, Truitt is unique in the field of minimalist art. She hand-painted her sculptures in multiple layers to create abstract compositions of subtle color in three dimensions. Her art is infused with memory and feeling, unlike much minimalist art, and while most of her peers were based in New York or Los Angeles, she worked alone and independently in Washington, D.C. In this conversation, held on the exhibition's opening day, James Meyer and Alexandra Truitt discussed the artist's career and her body of work developed in a series of local studio spaces. So here we are, Alexandra, and Alexandra Truitt is one of three of Anne Truitt's children, the others being Mary Truitt Hill, who's with us today, and Sam Truitt. Alexandra oversees the estate of Truitt. She is a professional archivist and worked on archives before working on her mother's uh, papers and estate, and she is a professional photo researcher. So she brings to Truitt's work both the deep knowledge of being the daughter of Truitt, growing up with this, uh, would give her, but also a professional um, understanding of what it is to organize an artist's estate. So working with Alexander for me has been a great pleasure, and it has facilitated my work a lot over the years. And Alexandra is the person who knows the most about the work, and as you will see as we converse. James knows. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> and uh, I uh, should mention that I've worked on Truett for a long time. I had the pleasure of knowing Anne. I met her in 97 when I came to Washington to interview her as I was preparing uh, my book, Minimalism, Art and Polemics in the 1960s. I wanted to understand uh, Truett, how she could be the person with the first show of minimal type sculpture in New York, an artist working in Washington. Her show precedes that of Donald Judd by several months. And uh, although I liked Judd, he did make me wait for three days in Marfa, Texas to meet him, whereas Truett greeted me at the door <laughs> and uh, made me lunch and it turned out to be my birthday and we had a great time. Um, I did include her in those books, and then we did an interview that was an art forum, which you can read in the brochure for this exhibition, where you hear Anne's voice. I also gave her her last show in her lifetime at Emory University's Carlos Museum, and worked on the Hirschhorn exhibition uh, that was here in 2009 uh, as an author, and last year uh, helped acquire and install several works at DIA, the DIA Beacon uh, uh, Foundation in upstate New York. So now the Tower Show at the National Gallery, very special exhibition. And the exhibition has three aims. One, it acknowledges the fact that the National Gallery now has a wonderful holding of works. Uh, 
really as good as, as any museum. It's taken a lot of gifts and acquisitions to make that possible, but most of the works in the show are owned by the gallery. Uh, our collector's committee bought Knight's Heritage. We've received gifts from Margot Wells Bacchus, from Carolyn Smith Alpers, from Robert and Mercedes Eichholz. And we've been very fortunate, so we can really put out a wonderful installation of Evan's work. Secondly, the show has a particular interest in Anne's studios, or what I call her studio life, the fact that she was a studio artist. We think that every artist has a studio, but actually in the 60s, the studio, the premise of the studio is being overturned. If you think of Warhol's factory where he's having other people make his paintings, and you think about Judd having fabricators build his boxes and so on, the studio is starting to seem old hat at that time, but Truett remains in the studio. She needs the studio to fulfill her work, and that seemed to me very interesting. And finally, she lived in this city, this strange place where <laughs> power collects. And she's living here, developing her work during the Kennedy administration and has connections to the White House. Her children are in the nursery school there. She's working in Georgetown at the time. She has studios around the city. She moves around the city to different neighborhoods. And the topography of Washington is rather interesting. It's a topography she knew. She used to drive me back to where I was staying. She knew these streets very well. So I thought, let's think about Truett and Washington as a place for her to work. Her, her insistence on working here, not moving elsewhere, is interesting, I think. She, by the way, studied at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, a now forgotten art school that existed for a couple decades on New York Avenue. And she studied with Alexander Giampietro. In 1949, you see her enrollment form. He gave her a grade of excellent twice. And he was not chopped liver. He had uh, a work at the Museum of Modern Art in this exhibition the same time he's teaching Truett. And in the 50s, and now, Alexandra, I'd love to uh, explore this with you. Mm -hmm. She's has this studio, uh, the first that I've documented in our show, from 52 to 57, which she shares with two other artists, Mary Orwin and Mary Pinchot Meyer, and doing this kind of construction work at the time. What do we know, what do we know about this studio? I mean, three people trying to fit into this studio. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me to talk to you today. The exhibition is beautiful, and I think the Looking at the work that's made in different studios around Washington is an amazing and interesting way to frame the work and to look at the work. This studio, uh, this studio was a really short-lived studio that she had right across. We lived on 30th Street, I think. I don't know if you can tell them from the map. We lived on 30th Street, and this studio was right down the street, like in this alley. So it was across, across from us, down a little alley, in a tiny little house. It was like there were a bunch of row houses, and this was kind of like somebody's little carriage house, which there are a lot of in Washington. If you live here, you know that. And I think what happened was the, th the three of Mary, Mary Orwin and my mother took turns using it. 
I think they all had busy schedules, and I think they each just kind of went in on their own time. But so my mother was making sculpture at the time, clay. Mary Orwin was a painter, and Mary Meyer was a painter. So in terms of space, you know, you could have painters working one way and then little sculpture. But I think that's what, I think the tight space and the tight constraints of time, I think is what led her to look for another space right near the house. And that's what led to um, the studio across the street where she could make her clay and make drawings. Okay, we're gonna get to that studio right. in a second. Right. But this, I think, was a tiny little weird space that and I that don't And that they worked there at different about. times. That's very interesting. I think so. Because you can't work together at the same time, too small. Frank Stella and Carl Andre in 59 <laughs> shared a studio where he made the black paintings and Andre was cutting his first wood sculptures. So sculpture can fit in the middle of the room and the paintings at the edge, right? Mm. And, but they had to be at different times. Yeah, these ladies. Mm -hmm. And you with mean, them, too. Yeah, with the, yeah. I think it's important just to mention that uh, Truett co-translated this book by Germaine Bray, a very distinguished French literary specialist who wrote on existentialism, on Camus, but did this book on Proust and memory. Um, and so your mother knew French and she participated in this. Well, this was a book that was started, um, the translation was started by her friend, Ricky Hill, who's my sister's mother-in-law was her mother-in-law, and she got pregnant and couldn't complete the translation and asked my mother to help, and her French was rusty, and so she looked a lot of words up, but she persevered and she translated the rest of the book, and she hadn't read Proust at all. She only read Proust after she translated the book, so her exposure to Proust was really through this translation of this um, commentary on Proust. But I think the habits that she formed when she was a writer and when she was doing things like translating this book, I think those are the habits that led to her studio habits. You know, the uh, working between living her life, working in the morning, you know, I think the writing formed the basis for her studio practice that she... Her discipline. Her discipline. That's really interesting. And, um, of course, Proust was, she told me, her favorite writer, my favorite writer, your favorite writer. We all are Proustians. We love and, Proust. Um, <laughs> and as you'll see, Proust, of course, the, the, the greatest thinker on memory um, in the past hundred years, besides Bergson, um, was very important for, for, for her, perhaps, mm -hmm. for thinking about memory as, mm -hmm. a, as, as a concern for an artist, uh, that somehow memory will, will enter her work, her work will embrace memory. I think, you know, Wolf, Joyce, Proust, I think those were the writers that she was thinking about when she made that transition from writing to sculpture in 49, right? So she, um, I think she couldn't figure out a way to make time uh, move forward in a, in a linear, she didn't like linear time, she liked time that embodied. And so I think that that, I think, uh, when she changed to sculpture, that's what she was doing, and I think it was partly that. Mm. I, is, is that making any sense? Yes, and she also, of course, majored in psychology at Bryn Mawr. Right. She doesn't start out being an artist. and yeah. so She's always interested in the psyche, mm -hmm. isn't mm -hmm. she? Yeah. Um, Embodiment, time. Perception. Perception, discipline, yeah. Mm. Making it happen which is what you see in the sculptures when you look at that. Where I don't know if 
you all have been upstairs to see the sculptures, but when you see those sculptures, there's something embodied in every single sculpture. You know, they're, you can see them in relationship to each other upstairs, but every sculpture has a distinct embodiment. You know, there's a, an idea or a something. There's something to each one. And she had to, to embody a content, whether that's memory or another content, in, in something physical. She had to, right? I mean, it's right. about a spectator's body, but about, as you're saying, embodying content in a form, in which, something material. Which she hoped that people would perceive whatever it was they perceived from it. But she put it in there. Um, what does that have to do with Proust? Because that's what he did in his entire... That was the premise for the whole book, was to place experience as embodiment, right? Something like that? Experience as embodiment. He described the experience of life through perception. Yes, I don't know. Perception, don't get off perception and memory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how memory mm -hmm. um, encapsulates an event, a situation, mm -hmm. and how it can only be recaptured. It's the drama of recapturing past experience. And, and she embodies it in the work. Yeah. Oh, and, and now, of course, your dad was a journalist, and you guys go out to, and you're very little at this time. Um, I'm little? Oh, you, I'm young, yeah. Yes, you're very... <laughs> Still little. <laughs> but in 1959, you, you're, you're a small child, and you're, mm -hmm. you're in San Francisco, because he was, uh, was he the, the Washington Post Bureau? Life. Life magazine. Life. He went out there for Life magazine. All right. Right. So and, he, we were, what? And you live, you live in Divisadero Street in San Francisco and also Belvedere? Well, when we moved out to San Francisco, my parents built a house in Belvedere. Mm -hmm. That was their first house. They were like, oh, we'll live on Belvedere. I don't know if you know the area of Belvedere, but it's now apparently very like, it's a little community. Everybody mm -hmm. has their own dock. They built a house and one day my father opened, everything was very close together, and one day my father opened his mirror when he was shaving, and he saw somebody put the razor in the same razor disposal thing, and he's like, oh, we have to move, because the houses were too close together. So we moved into San Francisco and lived at the corner of Divisadero and Clay, in a huge house with like an elevator and... And where did she work? I mean, how... She was an artist by this point. She goes to art school in 49. So she's, and in the late 50s, I've seen her works on paper. They're, they're excellent. From the, she's very accomplished by the late 50s. Well, that, that drawing, in in, when we moved to San Francisco, so when we moved to San Francisco, she had a little studio in that house, the first house. It mm -hmm. was just a room. And then when we moved to um, San Francisco, she had the attic. She had the top floor, mm -hmm. and she kept that room for herself. And that's where she made those newspaper, um, these newspaper drawings. She wasn't making uh, drawings. She was just doing fast things on newspaper, which you did that beautiful exhibition of at Emory. Mm -hmm. So she was making these drawings, 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 tons of drawings, but not really coming down to any form, still working on these kind of Mayan forms, so these ar archaeological... Because do they pay, don't they pay a visit to Mexico? Do they mm -hmm. go to the Mayan ruins? Is they started going to Mexico. Before that, mm -hmm. my father was always in, interested in Mexico, so they'd gone to Mexico a lot of times, and my mother started to love the Mayan temples and the shapes, which reminded her of somehow the archaeological ruins in Mexico reminded her of Easton. 
So Easton, Maryland, yeah, where we're Easton, going to arrive in a second. So. Okay, mm -hmm. and but but those newspaper drawings, like the one on the right, mm -hmm. there, there's a great interest in layering and opacity and pigment, that that will inform her her mature work. I think. Which goes the wire sculpture that you showed with the the first studio. That is the same. Uh, same idea of, oh, she was interested in cantilevering uh, density and shape. That's what she was, she tried to work in stained glass, which we don't have any of. She worked in these wire things. She was interested in overlapping and cantilevering and creating some kind of depth in the, on a surface like that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then you move back in 60 to Washington, and that's your house on mm -hmm. 30th Street in Georgetown. Mm -hmm. And that's the studio you mentioned just before. Um, it was in, wasn't that a boarding house? It's now, of course, a fancy townhouse, but at the time, wasn't it a boarding house where she rented a room mm -hmm. across the street? It was a super funky, I think he was a sort of a pack rat. And he had newspapers everywhere, like all just stacks and stacks and stacks, and you had to go upstairs and she was in one of these front rooms i don't know if it was on the second or third floor and she was making clay she had these you know these stands with clay and we would have to go over every once in a while i don't know if mary remembers but we used to have to go over once in a while and change the diapers on the clay she'd have these clay things on a big stand and she'd take off the plastic change the wet diapers put the plastic back on and that's where she made the things that she made before she abandoned clay. She was still working in clay there. And making, mm. making her early drawings as well that are in the show upstairs. Exactly. And it's at that time in 61, as we know, and she writes about in Daybook, her wonderful first journal, that she and Mary Meyer, the artist we heard about, go to DC and they see this show that Arneson, the famous art historian, H.H. Arneson, curates abstract expressionists and imagists. And she sees three works that she describes that make a big impact. The, this Barnett Newman, which you see um, at the bottom of the ramp, made a huge impression on her. Um, there was a Reinhardt as well, like this one. And there was a, another work by N D Nassos Dassis, who, who worked in wood. Is wood, like yes. wood, bo wood um, boxy wall things, right? Compositions on the wall. On, on wall, reliefs. And mm -hmm. she describes uh, two things. Uh, one, the Reinhardt took a long time to see. So the question of time, the time of looking, mm -hmm. that you were talking about, uh, in order to see a Reinhardt, it's not immediate, it's delayed. She found that fascinating. And then about Newman, the simple division down the middle, his famous uh, symmetry, the zip down the middle, as he called it, giving her, as she says, enough color, mm -hmm. comma, finally enough color. Mm -hmm. um, and what I think is interesting is you would have expected her to go back to DC and to make Newman-y things, you know, <laughs> sort of beautiful color field things, but she doesn't. She goes back to that studio and makes the sculpture in the middle first. She makes a fence. Yeah, I mean, she goes and she all of a sudden realizes that I think, you know, I think it's that the work she realized she could make anything because they had they had made difficult work that Reinhardt is difficult to see. I think she's like, oh, I can make anything I want. And what I want to make is a fence. And that's what she made was the fence. And calls it first. And and um, what I've always found fascinating, there's so much to it, the work first. Mm -hmm. um, that there's the front and the back. The back is interesting too in these early works. 
and it's one of two figurative sculptures she makes. The other is, of course, the tombstone resembling work, Southern Elegy on the right. Um, but also, if you look at the pickets, they're oddly shaped, and they always bothered me. You know, why couldn't she get them right, I thought, and why can't she make them all symmetrical or the same width? And then, of course, you, you look at Easton, the town that Alexandra mentioned where Anne grew up on the Eastern Shore, and you look at the roof lines and, um, and sort of Eastern Shore architecture of the, the ancient Third Haven's Friends Meeting House and the, the family home where she lived on South Street, and you start to realize that the whole town is embodied in that very simple sculpture. You could say that, but you know that's one of the aspects of I think the tops of these. But yeah, what else? She said she said that mm -hmm. what the the reason she made the um, pickets uneven is that when she was a child and she would walk along and run her hand over the top of these fences that were all around Easton, Maryland. We've all seen them; these white picket picket fences, she would run her hand along the fence, and she said that's the way the fences felt, that some of the, some of the pickets felt higher. So she would be like, boop, 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 boop. So she made them uh, high like this, and also because she was a child, she used to have to look through fences. She was curious about what every, what it, and always was, like we all are, curious about what your neighbor is doing. So she would always look through the fences and see what was going on, and as a child, she'd look into other houses. And so these intervals between the pickets are what she said life was like. You couldn't see it all at once. You could only get glimpses and to see between the, uh, this sculpture has a lot in it. Um, you had to see between these intervals. And she also said about the base, if she could have made a sculpture that stood up, just those three pickets, she would have done that, but she couldn't figure out how to make them stand up just on the ground. So she made this little, uh, what she called a platform or a base to put them on. Field, she called it a field. The little base at the bottom, that yeah. She called it, yeah. And my gosh, that one little sculpture could, inter could be interpreted in all these ways. Really yeah. cool. It's, as we would say, metonymical. It's an art mm -hmm. of association mm -hmm. with no one meaning, but, but infinite possible interpretations. And a front and a back. And she said that she always saw things out. You know, I asked her once, you know, is it, do you think of the front as the front and the back as the back? And she's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I was always outside of things. So she always felt she was outside the fence and that this is the front. There's, hmm. no, it, it, there's a front and a back to these early sculptures like this, like the one upstairs. And these drawings that begin the show, I mm -hmm. thought were really important to include. They are of Easton, they're working drawings, they're really important. Um, this one of South Street, which is the street she grew up on, with the doctor, is it Dr. Travers? Let's see. Dr. Stevens. Dr. Dr. Stevens. Okay, Dr. Travers is on the right, and Mr. Lockhart's hardware store, and this kind of reduction of these things to these abstract shapes from the side, facades of buildings. And then these of Dutchman's Lane, where you're looking down uh, like a bird, looking down at the street and mm -hmm. the, the inhabitants and, and the smells, the lily of the valley. And German siding, she writes that. I looked up, what is German siding? It's this way of uh, laying down wood with a scalloped end, so her interest in wood and how it's used to build things. Um, so all this memory kind of flooding in at this moment. Yeah, and it's funny too, because she never really ever calls anything Dutchman's anything. 
You know, the way her ti the titles of her work are sometimes, uh, you know, while she was making a work, she would have one title, she would change it while she was making the work, but nothing has ever ended up being called Dutchman's anything. Hmm. I mean, the things from Easton are very uh, changed. What do you call it? You know, starts off having a meaning about Easton, but ends up not having a title that has to do with Easton. Mm -hmm. But these are really, this looks like your map of Washington, though. Well, I mean, it's why I wanted to start the show with these drawings, because your mother, it seems to me, thought... No, the map, the Truett's Washington map. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That, that begins the other gallery. You, you, yeah. you, you, you have nailed it. Um, because she, she had, a, among other things, a cartographical mind, I mm -hmm. think. And mm -hmm. remember her story about the bicycle that mm -hmm. her father gave her a bicycle, and, and it gave her all this freedom to, to bike around the town of Easton and learn about its streets and alleys and and its buildings independently on her own. And her, their fences and the siding. Yes. And the, yeah. A lot of the work is architecture. I mean, the architecture, you know, the way things look, the way buildings look, the way the ruins look, the way things are placed, all of that is all in that work, the early work especially. And this wonderful drawing of, uh, based on Genesar, this very ancient house uh, near Assateague on the eastern part of the eastern shore. Mm -hmm. Um, which you can barely see, and yet you can see, really exploring this line between visibility and invisibility, mm -hmm. her interest in edge, mm -hmm. her interest in negative space. Mm -hmm. um, and interesting in that, I think it looks also like the, um, the house in Easton, the, it looks like the side of the house in Easton with that chimney. See that, doesn't it have a chimney? It did, yeah. It did, yeah. But it's that same roof line. Mm -hmm. And this magnificent uh, group of uh, works on paper, um, all from the Corcoran. And uh, I neglected to mention how important the acquisition of the Corcoran collection has been for us to put up this show of Truett. Uh, the Corcoran supported your mother. Her first retrospective, Walter Hopps, did in 74 mm -hmm. and acquired these works on paper, mm -hmm. the sculpture, Insurrection. Mm -hmm. um, the white painting, Arundel painting, mm -hmm. um, and the, the sculpture flower, all from the Corcoran collection. Well, the Corcoran at that time in the 70s was, you know, Isabel remembers, we all remember, if you were here, the Corcoran was, he, was so lively. You know, everybody was going to openings, there were collectors giving things, Ramona Suna gave work. You know, people, it was very lively. The Corcoran was, has a Great. I think the collect the what they have at the Corcoran yes. reflected that um, the liveliness, the liveliness mm. of the um, yeah. So we're just so gifts. thrilled to, that these mm -hmm. works are here and mm -hmm. and you know abstraction figuration the line between those she's really exploring that um, very creatively in these months uh, November and December of sixty two in that. Studio across the street, right? She made them there? Well, she's still making these clay things, which she has on the pedestal, right? So she has clay, which she's making, you know, these things on in clay, which were like that one you had earlier, the sort of Mayan one. And then she starts making, she goes to New York, mm -hmm. she comes back, she sees this work, she makes the fence in that little studio, mm -hmm. she makes those dark drawings in the studio, mm -hmm. and then she needs more room after she's made first. She's like, oh, I'm going to make sculpture, this kind of sculpture. And that's when she needs more room. And that's when we arrive at Twining Court, which mm -hmm. 
um, is, for those of you who don't know, it's a little studio off DuPont Circle. It's across from where the Palomar Hotel is. And that's Anne's studio upstairs. That building is now condominiums. It's been torn down. Um, but can you tell us about this studio? I, I think she, she, can, she inherited it from Kenneth Nolan, right, before he moves to New York? Well, the, she, uh, Kenneth Nolan was in Washington and I think moved to New York in 1962, right? He Don't left know. In, he was leaving Washington, moving to New York in 1962, and she said, what are you doing with your studio? And he said, nothing, you know, I'm just not doing anything. And it was $10 a month. And she's like, oh, I'll take it. And so she moved into that studio. Ken left all his paintings there that he abandoned, that he didn't want. So she had to slash all those and throw them away. And then also in that studio, Ken had somehow uh, taken Morris Lewis's paint. When Morris Lewis died, uh, his widow had all this magna paint that was in his studio and she didn't want it. And so Ken bought it from her, I think, to be nice or something. So he, he there was all this magna paint, which is hugely toxic and it had this terrible smell. And so she threw all that paint away. She took over this studio and she sort of began to make it her own. And this is her the first time she had kind of enough room to, well, it's not had enough room to make what she wanted because wanting to make the sculpture and having the room came simultaneously. Yes. So she wanted to make big things. She got a big space. She cleaned it up like this. And you can see on the walls where, um, where Ken had put his canvas up to paint it. And so she took over this space and began to make big sculpture. And uh, it was not heated. There were rats. It was really rough really rough and cold and so she uh, she took it over and she worked she worked in here and she started getting lighting for herself she used floodlights you can see in this photo that there's no light in the room so she had these huge kind of floodlights she would use but it was a rough space but the way the studio worked was I don't know if you can go back to the so the studio you'd go in that door and it was super dark, go upstairs, and the sculptures would come in on the left-hand side. She would have the armatures. She figured out after she made first that the lumberyard sort of said, oh, you don't have to make these. We can make them for you. You just give us scale drawings and, and the we'll lumberyard wasn't there is it a fellow in Georgetown initially? Gallo Gal uh, where did where was where did she get the armatures? Who made them? Uh, the lumberyard that was on Wisconsin below M, towards the Potomac, right down there. Gallagher's? So, um, yeah? Yeah. Hardware. It's still there, I think, right? Yeah. Oh, there you go. So they, would, so they would make them. And then I think the first couple she went and picked up in her car. And then they said, you know, we can deliver these. So she started to order bigger and bigger sculptures. She started to have them delivered. And they would hoist them up to that second floor window. Uh, what do you call this thing, uh, door, mm -hmm. where the hay would come in for the horses. Mm -hmm. And so she had the sculptures delivered in that door. So she's, she's really professionalizing her activity, mm -hmm. um, becoming a professional artist, and getting a bigger space that can allow her to make bigger things, you're saying. 
and the way she and and in this studio too, she begins to make things bigger than her body. So she would uh, sometimes draw a line on the wall and then step back from it and be like, "How big? How big should I make it?" So she was having things made and she was deciding how big to make them, mm -hmm. how big can she make them, how she moved these around herself. I mean, um, <sighs> a question from the chorus. Uh, my colleague Harry Cooper wanted to know about that. Handprint, was that you and your sister's handprint, or is it, what is it? Well, it's her handprint, oh. and that's her, the way she worked, you know, I think, I think one of the things about the way she worked that isn't apparent, maybe from the finished work, is that she worked very wet. Like, the whole process of making the sculptures was really, really wet. It involved a lot, lot of paint. You can see on this drop cloth some of that paint, but... She would, you know, the bowls mixing paint as she picked up the brush to, you know, paint all over the place. And because she'd worked in clay and plaster, she loved getting her hands wet. So, you know, that's one of the things she would say I miss with painting is getting my hands wet. But if you look at the film that's playing upstairs, you can see how when she works, she brushes, she wipes, you know, and she wipes it on her thing. So her hands were always covered in paint. and. There's some drawings that she actually, she always did that. She put her hand in paint and then make a, you know, a handprint. And there's some drawings that she actually initialed the way she did for a working drawing, where she would actually put both her hands in paint and kind of psh, 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 like down the paper. Mm. So it would be like, um, you know, dense, light, super light. And I think it has to, I think it's again, the time, uh, you know, depth, fading out, you know, how thin could she get a layer of paint and still have it be distinguishable as a hand? So she would do this handprint until it faded. And I think that that handprint is black, but the the ones she did as drawings were gesso. Never color, but just like gesso. And there's a bunch of them over the years. She would just do it. It's interesting because, of course, art historians, we always think of Jackson Pollock's famous handprints in his work, Number One, 1948 in the Museum of Modern Art, mm -hmm, which refers mm -hmm. to the Neolithic cave paintings at Altamira, Spain, uh, with handprints of the mm. artists who made those. Mm. And of course, John's, mm. there's a whole history of the handprint in post-war art. Mm. So it's interesting that she, she, she makes things. Well, I think that handprint is almost like, you know, it's almost like the hand painting. You know, the, a lot of the painting takes place while she's putting it on, you know, getting it on the sculpture, and it's, it's in the same way Pollock is making the painting in the space between him and the canvas, she's making this color on the sculpture between, with her hands. She's really messy. She it's, was super messy. She was really messy. I mean, she was not, she was not like a neat painter. She had tape things to, you know. She used masking tape to make divisions, didn't she? Yeah, but she would often put paper, you know, max, masking tape plus paper to keep the paint off the other side of the sculpture or, but those, I think, she painted upright, not lying down. You mean the white works? Yeah, the, the monochromatic ones. Yes. And that's the Noland, the residue of Noland's painting process on that wall. Yeah, yeah. And so this work, Mary's Light, is, is a talisman of the show. We put it in the center of the tower. It's the smallest work. It's the earliest sculpture. It's a really important sculpture. And it's named, of course, for Mary Meyer, the artist she shared the studio with um, in Georgetown. Mm -hmm. And uh, any, any thoughts about it, um, about the field or the color? Well, this sculpture, 
you know, you want to think that it's about Mary Meyer and you want to think that it's about, you know, something about her personality or something about her, you know, jauntiness or what good friends they were. But I think this, this sculpture is about Mary Meyer's work and the way that Mary Meyer used yellow and the way Mary Meyer's work was also very concerned with color. And I think the tragedy of Mary Meyer is that nobody has really, until recently, uh, has started to really work on s unpacking exactly what's going on with Mary Meyer. And Molly Berger is doing that now, which is great. But I think this sculpture is about uh, the way Mary used color. And mm -hmm. I think when she says Mary's light, I mm -hmm. think it's about her lightness in her color in her work. Also, you know, bisected color, mm. you know, these sort of quadrants and so less it's and not it's not anthropomorphic. I don't think so. <laughs> not a portrait. You want to think it is, but, that's but a, it's that may be a little too reduced a reading of it. Too transparent. Okay, but what about okay, what about putting Barry's light next to the sculpture two at Yale from the same moment, which is of course referring to the husband of Mary Meyer and his twin brother. Um, Cord and Quentin, and Quentin died in World War II, and, and Cord lost an eye in yeah. the war. And then A Wall for Apricots, 1968. Well, these are more, I think these, so, okay, so which, if you... Which recalls a parlor game <laughs> where Mary Meyer uh, and, and others uh, spoke of their three favorite things. And uh, one of, she came up with a wall of apricots, perhaps? She said a white wall. And okay. apricots. Okay, and and was it, we don't know what the third thing was. And my mother couldn't remember. Yeah, she she forgot. So yeah. So but I think too, I think if you didn't know that and you hadn't read the story or hadn't heard her tell the story, yeah. I don't think you would know that two is for Cord Meyer and his brother. But you know, it is. But it doesn't have to be. Is it what you're saying. It doesn't have to be. It stands as a work on itself. And and this sculpture, too, is the first sculpture where she did what she called counterpointed color. So if you look at Mary's Light, it's completely bisected. If you look at um, Insurrection, which is upstairs, it's, it's pretty much, I mean, everything, she always kept everything a little bit off the center, but um, this sculpture is the first one where she actually counterpointed the color. And she changed it too. You can look, if you can see the original masking tape around mm. the bottom where she changed the color, but she began here to move the color across the form, like that early painted wire sculpture. She's sort of sure. beginning to. But move Mary's that Light color and around. Insurrection, it's not completely symmetrical. It's no. always slightly counterpointed, even then. Right. Isn't it? Yes. Um, and here the back is very important, the front and the back and making the back prominent, sort of asking us to walk around the sculpture. She's really thinking in 360 degrees, it seems to me at this point, um, mm -hmm. and working tall. It's pretty amazing to think that she is doing all this, that she's living, you guys are living on 30th Street. She has that drawing studio. She's driving down P Street across the bridge to Twining Court and mm -hmm. making these strange sculptures. Yeah quite privately, right? Yeah, totally, totally privately. I don't think until, I don't think until she showed them to Andre Emmerich in 62? The Two. show was in 63, she showed them to him in 60. Well, she'd already made all these big sculptures. She was making them just completely on her own in this, in 1962 in a 
carriage house. Yeah. Ordering them, painting them, these dark colors. Mm. Like Knight's Heritage, is, which is upstairs, the same. And here she gets rid of the field. And this is where I would say, although describing your mother's work as minimalist is, is, is uh, simplistic and, and, and not, I mean, no, no minimalists like to be called minimalist. They all hated the word. Um, but that she's getting rid of the field. She's putting it right on the floor. And that also causes a body to walk around it and experience it with your whole body and space and look above it. Mm -hmm. It changes your relationship to the work. And that's what minimal sculpture does, Morris, Judd, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, makes it a very important work, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's her Emmerich show. So remember the story that Morris Lewis dies in 62. Uh, Greenberg comes down for the funeral. Mm -hmm. Your father was a pallbearer mm -hmm. for, for Morris Lewis. And Greenberg comes to that Twining Court studio and sees this work and is quite impressed and declares, quote, now there will be three in Washington, Ken Noland, Morris Lewis, and Anne Truitt. And suggested that Andre go look at the studio. And he went over and he said, why don't we do a one-shot show and see how it goes? And that's, <laughs> that's And this is the one-shot show, yeah. Mm -hmm which she didn't have anything to do with its installation. She let Ken Noland uh, and, Ruben and, and Ruben Greenberg and, yeah, install it for her. Or they, or they, or she didn't they let, insisted. they insisted. <laughs> Remember, she sat She's down. She's very funny now, right? Yeah, she, she, she. Sat down and smoked a cigarette and yeah, let them install right. it. Yeah. Um, and this is when your mother really becomes known uh, in 64, 66, there are these big shows of minimal art, black, white, and gray at Hartford, um, where you have Truitts with Robert Morris's and Tony Smith's, Barnett Newman, Ellsworth Kelly, Rauschenberg, white painting. Mm -hmm. And it, it really takes off for her. Mm -hmm. This artist working in DC mm -hmm. is uh, with all these other people. Well it turns out all of a sudden there she has friends you know not friends but it turns out that there's work that somehow relates to what she was doing yes. all by herself that she had no idea about like morris you know whose work is very involved with architecture these mm -hmm. uh, lentils referring mm -hmm. to ancient egyptian mm -hmm. architecture mm -hmm. and so on um you guys moved to tokyo your father's posted uh, is it Newsweek or, or the Post that brings him to, to you all to Tokyo? Well, in in uh, in San Francisco, it's Life, and then we come to Washington, and he was vice president at the Washington Post. And then after Phil Graham died, uh, the thought was to offer him uh, bureau chief of Far East for Newsweek. So we went to Japan. So it was for news. It was for Newsweek. Right, yeah. and and. In a way, it wasn't the best thing for her career because here she, it's really taking off and it would have been better for her to just stay here in DC and do what she did so beautifully. But you, you do go to Tokyo. She does have a studio there. Mm -hmm. um, a weird, again, a, kind of a back to a weird studio. What small. was it like? What was it like? Well, the, the door to the left was an alleyway and, and it was kind of, it was a very funky neighborhood. Bunga, it's fancy now, but it was a little alleyway. And then you went into the room and that was the, the windows are the front of the room, but it was, it was super small, super small, like a little, like a little apartment basically in somebody's house. 
she had this show, Minami, Minami Gallery was a very good gallery. Um, Jean Tangley, others, it was an international space. Well, Kate Millett was the first show before her. You mean the, the writer Kate Millett? Yeah, she was, was an making artist? a sculpture, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And so she's working in metal. And for this period, she's using fabricators, right, to make metal. And she does paint these works. And, and so she has them destroyed. She's not happy with them. She writes about not liking Tokyo because the light was wrong. It wasn't right for her work. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us about these works that no longer exist? Um, well, these works, when she, when she got to Japan, she, didn't, she, she had to find a fabricator for her works. And I think she knew that she wasn't going to be able to make this. She wasn't going to be able to keep on the same track that she. Well, you know, she wasn't be able to keep on the same track that she'd been on at Twining Court with these big, uh, rectangular structures. And she began to think that she would work in aluminum so that she could bring them back to America more easily. And I think she began to think that she would try a departure from from this format that she'd been working in. And she started to think in terms of color that moved in space. And she looked around. And in Japan at the time, uh, there were a lot of new materials. People were beginning to think that they would reconstruct. Japan was destroyed after the war. And some Japanese were thinking that they would take aluminum and they would make these huge skyscrapers out of aluminum. So there was a lot of new thinking about materials. So there's this, this, this aluminum was available, and there was a company called Almet that uh, invented the solder, uh, that a process called cold soldering, so you could solder aluminum cold. So she, she sort of uh, worked her way around Tokyo, figured out uh, a company that could cut the aluminum, a company that could put it together. And this is all through translation, through our driver kind of helped her. He was this young man, Ishikawa-san, and he, he helped her around translating. And everybody kind of thought she was crazy. She was this big American woman, and she would come in, and they would be like, mm-hmm, sure, we'll make it. But she found this young man who I went back and talked to in Tokyo a couple of years ago, and he loved working with her because he was in his 20s, and he was like, oh, this is great. I get to spend the day out of the office, and I come work with this woman. And he said, they put them up on this big table, and she was sort of saying, you know, Let's assemble it like this. Make sure this happens, that happens. And he soldered it, and as he did this process, she saw that the edges would be very crisp, and he remembers particularly that she said, crispy edges are good. And he, so he made these, he fabricated these for her, and then she painted them. Mm -hmm. And when she came to paint them, the only model that she had for putting paint on aluminum was ships. So she, um, she went to the Nippon Paint Company and got ship paint and painted them with ship paint, you know, in these colors. Which she wasn't happy, so she wasn't happy. She's written about it, but she was not happy with the result. She said they were too sort of intellectual, um, too conceptual. Too conceptual, and the color, she had to use iron in, in the earlier sculptures, and subsequently she always underpainted with white gesso, so the color would, um, uh, what do you call this? You know, shine. Uh, come forth? Come, come more, alive. More brilliant? Yes. With the white substrate? Yes. And these had yellow oxide underneath, and it was flat. And these, actually, these things themselves were not, 
I'm, my sister remembers, I'm sure. It, they were hard, They were kind of awful. They were sort of like hollow. You knock on them, like bong, bong, bong. And then she had these ones that she made that were like kind of uh, angled, which were flat. I don't think we have a picture of them, but they were flat. And those, we ended up like just sitting on them to watch TV. They were just like, they were like really bad. Okay. But the drawings. She made beautiful, beautiful drawings. The drawings are beautiful. This is in our show, the one on the left. And the drawings, she was trying to make this sculpture, but it didn't, you know, the drawings, she said, were beautiful, but she just couldn't get that as a sculpture. But it's it a, is about color moving through space. Well, you've written this. Yes. It's it, beautiful. Which is it's very interesting. Folding color folding in space. Folding color in space. Folding color in space. Mm -hmm. And you move back in 67 up to Tilden Street. Um, and this, so we... I had so much fun doing this. Um, I went around with one of our photographers, with Rob Shelley, photographing all the studios that hadn't been documented. And the owners of this house were very kind and, and prepared it for us, um, got rid of the water hoses and stuff. And so tell us about how did this work? So it's not, the studio is not a separate building anymore. It's in the house um, in the late 60s. Well, this house was really big. You can't see the front of it, but it was it was a pretty big house. And the minute we moved into it, we got bedrooms, and I think we got a room to watch. We were crazy about TV. We got a TV room in the back, and then my mother just claimed this space for herself. So it was kind of immediately off limits, and it was she could go in and out of it through... So the front of the house is to the right. This was around the side. She could have sculptures delivered through those doors. You mean downstairs? It downstairs. Was down here. Sorry. Uh -huh. Yeah, downstairs in that area. Was so, the kitchen here? Is that yeah, that's the kitchen. But the stairs were not like that. But uh -huh. basically, same setup. But this was her studio down here. So this was a pretty big room. She made a lot. What you have sculptures upstairs that were made in that room. Well, didn't she make spume and midday in there? Spume no, is, spume is, is later. Calvert's yeah, here. what was made in this space were these two incredible works on paper from '68, right? And um, which we're thrilled to uh, rejoin for our show. May I ask you, sort of, what was it like to be the the child of of a determined, serious, first-rate artist, who's disappearing in the studio was that how did it work did she make breakfast and then she'd work and then she'd come back for lunch how, how did the day how did it work well by this time we were used to it because you know she was uh, how did it work um when she was in the studio it was kind of off limits and if she had something to do we were told not to come home like so <laughs> it was it, it, she was pretty strict about it. I don't know. I don't know that it's different from a man. I mean, how do men work in their studios? They they just go in their studio. So if my mother wasn't around, we knew she was in the studio. If you know, if we were at school, she was in the studio. She's she just, just. You don't make this work without being incredibly determined and focused. Well, the same habits that she formed, you know, when she was writing, I think are the same. Ha mm. I think it's like having a writer in the family or yep. having somebody who has a hobby or some something they do that they're disciplined about. You just accept it. So as a, as a child, I think we just understood that model of somebody is working. Mm. And it, it was our mom. And I just... It was pretty normal, I think, mm -hmm. to us. We didn't know any better. 
<laughs> and and thanks for that. And then, of course, in '69, for several months, she she works on Calvert Street in Adams Morgan. In well, first she had no studio. Okay, tell us about that. So when my parent, we were living in Tilden Street. My parents got divorced, and she had no studio. She was. We were in a. We moved to a smaller house. She had no studio, and she did drawings. Mm. So for a period, she had there was a, a gap where she had no studio um, after Tilden Street. And then Walter Hopps, who was at the Corcoran, had kind of put together this space for artists to work in. So he had this building on Calvert Street. I have no idea how he got it. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe she writes about it. But in here were John Gossage was in here. Joe Cameron was in here. There were some architecture students. People were sleeping in here and living in here. And then she had a studio in the back. So she, oh no, maybe it was when she lost. I think she got that shortly after Tilden Street. But anyway, that's, that's how she got that was Walter Hobson. Joe Cameron took that picture of her. And she's sanding. And I think one <laughs> thing people might want to know is, is she starts to sand between the coats of paint. It's, uh, the painting process gets more elaborate in her desire to make this very luminous, or she called it filmic color. Mm -hmm. um, she told me that Greenberg advised her to sand. Was it Greenberg or was it Nolan? I think Nolan, Nolan conveyed Greenberg, the great critic's advice. Sand. Nolan said, Clem says you should sand. Well, she was. She <laughs> No, she was, you should think about sanding. <laughs> I should think. Well, first she was wiping. So what she would do before she, she also never stopped wiping, but she would do gesso and then she would wipe. And then she then later started, yes, to sand. And she returns to wood. Um, after Japan. After Japan. In that Tilden Street studio. Back in Tilden Street, mm -hmm. okay. The second she got back from... Japan. She went back to ordering sculptures and just making wood sculptures again. And but in a different material than before. Right. Can you tell us, so the early works were poplar and the poplar cracked? Some of the poplar cracked. All right. So she, when she came back, she started working in marine mahogany plywood. And that's what she worked with for the rest of her life. Same thing you make boats out of. She a more stable, a, of a more stable wood mm -hmm. that could absorb the paint, and and she puts she puts a, a, a sort of circle at the bottom. She cuts out a hole in the bottom. Doesn't well, she? Well, she left it to her fabricators to decide how to how to make the bottoms. She didn't mind. You can see one of the bottoms in the film upstairs when she turns the sculpture to the side and is painting the bottom. You can see the bottom, but some of them have you know one hole. Some of them have four holes. It depends on who fabricated the sculpture. And the holes allowed the wood to breathe. To, to ventilate. To, to ventilate. Right. And her final studio, where I mm -hmm. uh, visited her, uh, behind her house, your house, uh, on 35th Street in Cleveland Park, a separate studio. And she designed it. How did that? When she finally was able to build a studio, she won a Guggenheim Award and used part of that money for it? Well, I think she was, yeah, she'd been moving around Washington a lot, and uh, she applied for and received a Guggenheim, and when she got the Guggenheim, she realized what she really needed was a studio. So she wrote the Guggenheim Foundation and asked them if she could spend the money on a studio. They said yes, so she took, um, 
she built what she considered a fisherman's shack from Easton, Maryland. She uh, followed Louisa Jenkins, was an artist in Big Sur, who she was friends with and had mm -hmm. a great correspondence with in Japan. Anyway, Louisa Jenkins had always said to build your windows up high so you have a lot of wall space. So she took her suggestions, and then Hugh Jacobson suggested that she just sink the thing into the ground so that when you went in, you went down. But she had 15-foot ceilings, but from the outside, it was only eight feet or something. But it was a beautiful studio. This is the studio. 20 by 25 or something. It was a beautiful studio. And so she had the work come in, paint it, work would go out. Work would come in, she would paint it, work would go out. When she didn't have sculpture in the studio, she would make drawings. It was a great studio for her. And she, she was able to work bigger. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So the, these two magnificent works mm -hmm. in our show, which are in our, the first works to enter the gallery collection, Spume, the gray work, and Midday, um, I think they're among the tallest works she ever made. The tallest. The tallest. Sure. And so she could work at a different scale um, on 35th Street. Mm -hmm. and makes her parvas, the mm -hmm. series of smaller sculptures. Well, those she sometimes would make in the, at Yado, but she would make those at home too. Mm -hmm. Not at home, but in her studio. And then she really experiments with her surface. I mean, isn't the surface of Summer Remembered on the right, isn't that made through sponge? Is, how well, did she do it? Well, this Summer, the orange, the orange she, um, in Japan, she sort of figured out a way to make color, sort of uh, layered color and color that um, came forward and went back. And some, there are a couple of sculptures where she used the same technique that she used in the drawings on the sculpture. And Summer Remembered is an example of that where it's not completely brushed. Some of it is rolled, some of it is a little bit sponged, but this, this has a really great surface on it. One of the interesting aspects of your mother's later work are... Oh, can I say something? But oh, also please. taped at the bottom. So the bottom one, the bottom part is... So it's a combination of both. Oh, no, it's not taped. It's, it's drawn, like, hand. So that whole thing not taped at all. Interesting. One of the interesting aspects of, of, of Truett's later work is on, on some hand, some of the works are monochromatic, mm -hmm. um, like spume, although there is a division down the middle mm -hmm. that's very subtle. Mm -hmm. um, but increasingly, she'll vary each of the four sides. I think of uh, Elixir, that later mm -hmm. work, Elixir. And, but also Summer uh, remembered. The, she would call this narrative sculpture, uh, where she would, you would try to remember each side as you walk mm -hmm. to the next. Mm -hmm. And it creates this incredible experience of, of, of looking and remembering as you walk around the piece. Mm -hmm. That's the same sort of technique, a little bit as Summer remembered. And two paintings in our show, mm -hmm. very sweet, Sand Morning, mm -hmm. and the white, large white Arundel painting, the mm -hmm. series of white paintings that were exhibited at Baltimore and which she writes about in Daybook. And I, I think they were not warmly received. Is that true? No, people hated them. They wrote and said, the emperor's new clothes. They wrote, somebody, a critic wrote and said, here's my review. And it was a blank piece of paper. And they mailed it in. It was, everybody was hugely angry at these paintings. And then the Baltimore Museum extended the exhibition. It was, it was, it was interesting. People were really, really angry. Was your mother 
I mean, who, who, how, how to say it, was she hurt when people didn't like her work? Or My experience was that she just was uh, used to it after a while. Yeah, she was used to it, the hostility. Yeah. And the lack of grasp, the lack of understanding. And the lack of willingness to, to, to think about what they were about. But maybe it was the time, I don't know. Was a, was a lot of art thought, was there hostility to other artists at the time? When this show is happening, absolutely. Yeah. Um, white paintings to us now look classic, you know? <laughs> but I think at the time it was still far out. Yeah. But Rauschenberg, did Rauschenberg get tr the same reaction? Oh, I don't, re I don't remember how the, mm -hmm. the, his white painting show, that was 51, yeah. Betty Parsons. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that was reviewed. That mm -hmm. was really far out. I mean, yeah. it was, um, and they weren't as beautiful and, and in terms of surface as Truett's white paintings. They were painted with rollers, house mm -hmm. paint, and can mm -hmm. be remade at each exhibition. They're, they're really far out. Yeah. Um, and then the final work in the show, Twining Court Number 2, I thought it was very important to have a late work mm -hmm. to show where the work goes. And of course, this work wonderfully refers back to the first studio, uh, mm -hmm. the first sculpture studio from the last one, mm -hmm. and to that period of time. Well, this dark, the dark drawings that you have at the beginning of the exhibition, she used to call those, some, somehow she referred to them as fields. And these darker, the later sculptures that are monochromatic, she said that she was finally, finally beginning to get what she started out to get to in the 60s, which was to make, to convey those fields of color. But the field is black, so. <laughs> But it's an amazing black, and, and mm -hmm. one of the pleasures of looking at, at Truett's very monochromatic works is that the same Inflection. hue mm -hmm. from different sides looks very different. It might look gray, mm -hmm. and then it's black. Mm -hmm. And then another thing at the top of Twining Court Two is that little rim mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the paint gets um, it's indented at the top, mm -hmm. where she masked it. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even see that until we lit the sculpture. Like, our, yeah, you have to spend time with yeah. them to get it, to, to have them come alive, if that's the right expression. Or to be visible. To be visible. To be right. visible. Right. To be visible. So the final studio, mm -hmm. pictures of you and your sister. Mm -hmm. John Gossage took them, right? Or somebody else? I think Mary took the one of herself, and John Gossage took the one of me. Where you look like uh, Virginia Woolf's. Who? Oh. Uh, of Mary? Somebody we knew took the yes. picture of Mary. You look like a Julia Margaret Cameron. Oh, and, yeah, you know, thank like you. Virginia Woolf's mother. <laughs> yeah. um, and of course, the jars with, uh, for each work, she would label them and, uh, in a sense, remember the work through its process through the jar. Well, those things, I th you know, it's funny because you can't use that paint because if you try to use that paint on a sculpture, it's not sanded, it's not, you know, the paint. So these were just, it's like her library, you know, her, her, it's, it, it, they kept her company. I don't know, those, those jars are amazing. They're beautiful paint. But you're saying that you can't use the you paint can't now. You can't really use the paint, but she kept them. But I don't think she knew that. Never, I don't think it would have occurred to her mm -hmm. that you can't use it. And then the, the mm -hmm. final works. Mm -hmm. um, they get very, very monochromatic, and the, the proportions are, are 8 inches by 8 inches by 81 inches. If you look at the Twining Court number 2, which is one of the late works, it's slightly different. It's slightly lower 
than this one. I think that's 83 inches. So she settles on this 81 inch tall, eight by eight inch format. Excuse me. And so I think that's Genesar on, on the left. Genesar on the left, Evensong in the middle, and then uh, Return on the right. And Evensong being her last work. Mm -hmm. And so why that title, Evensong? Well, Evensong is the, what, the last, last service of the evening for the Episcopal Church? Mm. When you, something about calling home? What mm. is it? It's the last service of the day. And this was her last sculpture. So the first sculpture is first, and the last sculpture is Evensong. Mm. And that's the, that's the body of work. Yes. All through. Thank you, Alexandra. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.